Acts chapter number 2, beginning in uh, verse number 22. I'm going to let you know right up front, this is a very unique sermon that I'll be preaching to you here this morning. Uh, In my recollection, uh, since I got right with the Lord 33, almost 34 years ago, and all of the years of preaching, I'm not, I don't know that I've preached a sermon quite like the one I'm preaching here today. And so um, it'll be unique. But I am certain that it will be informational, and I'm also certain that it is some very valuable and important information that we as God's people need to understand and be reminded of here in the year that we live, 2019, in the United States of America. Acts chapter number 2, verse number 22, ye men of Israel, this is Peter preaching, of course after we've talked about all of the controversy of the tongues movement Uh, Last two weeks, we've addressed that from a scriptural standpoint. We've looked at the facts, uh, not the surmising of the facts. And so Peter's answering all of these questions. He says, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved." Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. We'll say more about this in next week's message, but this is David speaking prophetically of Jesus Christ during the time period from when he died on the cross of Calvary in between that and when he resurrected three days and three nights later. Verse 28, Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, Peter goes on to say, Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. This is significant in Peter's message, and I'll explain in the introduction in a few minutes. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all our witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation." Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. 
and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. They continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I had a hard time as I read our text thinking about all of the things that are going to be in the message in next week's sermon. So many things that need to be said, but I promise you by the grace of God, we will cover as many of them as possible, not only today, but uh, next week as we take a look. The message this morning and for next week is entitled, The First Gospel Sermon Ever Preached. Part one today is a title that I'll explain as we go on, and that is, The Reformation Needs a Reformation. By way of introduction, I'd like to say that this first gospel sermon that was preached by the Apostle Peter, that there was certainly a kingdom emphasis, a kingdom understanding, and a kingdom audience. Peter speaking of our patriarch David and speaking of how that Christ will one day sit on his throne. But while he's speaking of a kingdom, he's also speaking of a crucified and resurrected Savior. There is a difference between the kingdom and the church, the church age that we live in today. Those who responded to Peter's message became part of the church. According to verse number 41, if you'll look at it with me once again, it says, They that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Verse number 47 adds the word church to that accounting. And the last of the verse, it says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so the church has been established. The Holy Ghost shows up at Pentecost. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentile. First Corinthians chapter number 13, Paul reveals that. Of course, this is much later on. But at the time that Peter is preaching this, there is certainly a kingdom emphasis, a kingdom audience. In retrospect, as we look back to this time, we can look back and we can say that there's no difference between these who responded and the church today. And yet, if the Jews would have nationally received the message, we can ascertain from the Scripture that things would have been much, much different if the Jews would have received their risen Messiah. I think about Matthew chapter number 11 and verse number 14 as Jesus is speaking of John the Baptist. He says, if ye will receive it, this is Elias, that's the Old Testament Elijah, which was for to come. Was John the Baptist Elijah? Well, in retrospect, we would say no. Why? Because the Jews did not receive it. They did not receive that message. So how you say, how can, how could John the Baptist be Elijah but not be Elijah? Well, you're going to have to get into the mind of God's sovereignty and foreknowledge before you'll ever figure that out. How about Acts chapter number 15 and verse number 8, where it says, In God which knoweth the hearts, this is Peter preaching later on in the book of Acts, Bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Peter is referring to the first Gentile converts who became part of the church, and Peter says he put no difference between them and us. How about Ephesians chapter number 4, and verse number 4, where Paul reveals that there is one body, and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
As I think about Peter's first gospel sermon, it is certain that in retrospect, and that's the key word, in retrospect, we would say that all of these who responded to Peter's message became, they got way, way more than they bargained for. Their question, if you'll look with me at verse number 37, at the end of the verse, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? If you'll keep in mind that Peter has not revealed to them that they have a sin problem, but rather Peter has revealed to them that you got a major problem. You crucified your Messiah. You crucified your King. And as he's giving them that message and telling them about his resurrection, they were pricked in their heart. And they said, what do we do? And Peter said, verse number 38, one of half a dozen verses that has created so much confusion, controversy, and heresy in church history, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost." Peter's invitation in verse number 38 is not, I'm going to say this, I'm not going to spend the whole sermon proving this, but I'm going to say this emphatically, that Peter is not implying to them that baptism saves them. If you don't believe me, then just turn a page over and look at Acts chapter number 3 where Peter has just preached another sermon within days of the first sermon, no record has been given that Jesus or the Holy Ghost has revealed anything additional to the Apostle Peter. And he says in verse number 17, And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. He's talking about them killing the Prince of Life, verse 15. He says, But... Those things, verse 18, which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Notice what he says in verse 19. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So Peter is not speaking that baptism saves anyone. He's speaking that repentance and getting converted, putting faith in Christ, that does the saving. But as was always the case, baptism was just the natural sign that would follow. I guess the best way that I know to describe it without getting into all of the doctrinal details is that baptism is kind of like a birth certificate. It's an outward, it's something that is done outward to show what has happened inwardly. It, I guess you would say that it makes the conversion official. But you know, uh, a birth certificate has no value if you have no living baby. It's just a piece of paper. And so while baptism naturally goes along with conversion... Peter is not saying that baptism saves. If he was doing that, then he didn't do a very good job as a preacher in Acts 3.19 because he left that part out. And so that's why it's important that we take the entire Word of God within context and we compare Scripture with Scripture before we grab a hold of one phrase or one verse and build an entire theological system on that one particular passage of Scripture. I'd like to start out now with this two-part message with point number one. That's all I'm going to have time to deal with here this morning is point number one. And we find it in verse 22 and verse number 23. And I want to speak to you about the purpose of Christ. The purpose of Christ. It says in verse 22... Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Watch verse 23 closely. It says, him being delivered by what? By the determinate 
counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. This term, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, presents to us a subject that is often debated today and has been since the time of early Christianity. Some call it predestination. Some call it the covenant of grace. Some Calvinism, and commonly today people refer to it as reformed theology. For those of you that perhaps don't know a lot about church history, I'm going to give you a very simple crash course in what we mean by Reformed theology. In 1517, a man by the name of Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Martin Luther, being a Roman Catholic theologian, priest, and monk. All Saints Church, obviously, being a Roman Catholic church in Germany. This 95 thesis was a list of 95 things that Martin Luther took issue with, with the Roman Catholic church, the church that he was part of. And when he did that, there was already a lot of trouble brewing within the church. But when he did that, it kicked off what we know today as the Reformation. Martin Luther opposed many of the corruptions in the Roman Catholic Church, one of the big ones being something they refer to as indulgences. Preacher, what is an indulgence? Well, an indulgence is basically the ability to pay money in order to pay for a sin. For instance, you could pay a certain, and this is, this is where the corruption had continued to grow, and it, it had almost become to the point where you could buy an adultery token. You could pay a certain amount of money and you would get your adultery indulgence and you could go indulge in adultery and it would be free. It wouldn't be considered a sin because you'd already bought your indulgence. Some of you are looking at me like, are you kidding? No, I'm not. And so because of that, Martin Luther, who was a theologian, who had personally been under deep conviction for many, many years, I mean struggling because as he studied the Scripture, he was continually condemned in his conscience that he wasn't measuring up to God. And he knew that, hey, I've got, to, I've, I've got to do more. I've got to work harder. I've got to be more devout and more religious. And the more that he tried to do that, the more that his conscience condemned him. And through that, there was a process that led to a conclusion that becomes the first distinctive of the Reformation. I'll give it to you here in just a moment. But first, there was a saying in Martin Luther's day that someone said this. I forget the, the man's name. He was a, another priest. And he said this, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And so not only could you buy an indulgence for your own sins, but you could buy an indulgence to try to get your lost loved ones who had already died, you could buy them out of purgatory. Martin Luther knew that this was a corruption from the Bible, a corruption of religion. Martin Luther's 95 Thesis, the result of it was some extremely positive steps toward biblical Christianity as well as true conversion. During his time, the printing press had been around for, oh, about 75 to 100 years the Gutenberg Press was invented in 1439, and by the time of 1517, it had become very popular. Because of that printing press, more and more of the common people were gaining access to the Bible. And so less and less were they depending upon the clergy, the priests, the ministers to tell them what the Bible allegedly said. 
The dark ages had been around for hundreds of years, and the reason that they were dark is because there was no light. Human history, world history, shows that from the time of about 325 A.D., when the church and pagan Rome amalgamated together, and the Scripture, through religion, was basically taken away from the common man, darkness filled the earth. In fact, we have so little of human history during those time periods. So little. Why? Because there was very little culture. You had an entirely feudalistic system where you better have, you better have some weapons and you better have a castle and you better have some power because if you didn't, somebody was going to come along and kill you and take everything that you had. That was the cultural environment in Europe and Great Britain during that time. It was a very, very dark time, a wicked time in human history. Through Martin Luther's stand, many other men who had already been struggling with the corruption of the Roman Catholic system began to rise up on the scene. Men such as John Calvin in France, later on in Switzerland... Men such as John Knox in Scotland began teaching against Roman Catholicism. And not too many years after that, all of the professing Christians or many of the professing Christians in England pulled away from the Roman Catholic system and started their own church. We know it today as the Church of England. These men and all of their followers throughout church history have established Various religious organizations such as the Presbyterian Church, such as the Lutheran Church. Of course, the Church of England would branch out. You had Congregationalists, you had Episcopalian, you had uh, some of the very, very devout groups known as Puritans. Many of which we can trace back our roots as some founding fathers of the United States of America. They broke away from Rome. The majority of these religious organizations can trace their roots to either Rome or to one of these reformers. I mentioned earlier about the distinctives of the Reformation. They include, number one, justification by faith. Now, this is a wonderful distinctive. This is probably of all of the things that the Reformation is credited for, I would have to say this is at the first of the list. Because men like Martin Luther, certainly they read the Scripture and they came across the phrase in the book of Galatians where it says, the just shall live by faith. Martin Luther had been struggling with his own sin, his own consciousness, his own depravity. That scriptural light sprang up in his heart and he realized that, hey, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by indulgences. We're not saved by all of the religious sacraments that we've been performing. We are justified by faith. To which I say heartily, amen. Because we as believers, we are saved by faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace... Are you saved through faith? And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you're trusting in anything to get you to heaven other than the grace of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, I'm telling you, you are missing the boat. No one's going to get to heaven by their own goodness or anything that they could earn or merit. And so that was a tremendous, positive move toward biblical Christianity. But as we study all of the reformers, the next three distinctives are very, very common. Some among, uh, more among some than others. But secondly, I would say that a distinctive was a resurrection of Augustine's teachings. Augustine was one of, we know as one of the early church fathers. Augustine was very, um, we would say today in retrospect that Augustine would have been uh, part of the Roman Catholic system, but he was very different in his teachings. One of the things that he began to teach 
is this doctrine of predestination. Now, we find the word predestination in the Scripture. And I listen, I believe in predestination. But I don't believe that the Bible teaches what Reformed theology says that it means. I don't believe that God has pre-selected anyone to heaven or salvation and pre-selected others to hell. And that's what Reformed theology says. Of all of us sitting here in this congregation today, regardless of your belief, regardless of your experience, according to predestination, Reformed theology, Calvinism, call it what you want, but according to that system, then you've either been selected to be saved or you've been selected to damnation. And you have absolutely no say-so in it. For some reason, people have have a hard time understanding that faith is not works. Having faith, God gives us the ability to have faith, but just because we make a choice doesn't mean that we did anything to merit our salvation. But let me move on for sake of time. The third distinctive was infant baptism. So the Reformed theologian says that God has pre-selected you to salvation or damnation. And they had a problem with figuring out what do we do with our young'uns? What do we do if, I mean, they're born as sinners? I mean, I can't, I couldn't imagine as a Christian mother to think that I'm bringing a precious little baby into this world, and that if my baby died, that if my baby wasn't one of the elect, then my baby's going to go to hell. I know some of you are going, that's a horrible, horrible thought. How can you even say that? Well, I say that because that's history. And that's the mentality and that's the thinking here, that God pre-selects some to salvation and others to damnation. We have no say-so over it. But I run into some practical application when I'm holding my little baby and think, I don't know if my baby's elect or not. And so because of that, I've got to figure out a way that I can at least do something about it. And so what did they begin to do? They began to baptize their babies and their theological explanation was that the church has replaced the kingdom and the kingdom sign was circumcision Abraham's descendants, they circumcised their babies, so we're just going to replace this with baptism. And you say, well, where did they get that in the Bible? Well, they didn't. They didn't. Because it's just simply not there. Not by example, not by teaching, not by any of those things. The fourth distinctive of the Reformation was connected to infant baptism, and that is the establishment of a state church. Now, if you study human history, you know that when Roman Catholicism was strong and powerful, they always had great power and influence over the kings of this world. Kings in Europe, kings in England, kings were in Latin America and so forth. They were strong because they believed that the civil government should be subservient to the church. Some of that's because of their uh, post-millennial viewpoints that, um, that the church has replaced the kingdom, that the church has replaced Israel. Let me say this just for free, and uh, not for fun, but for free, that there's a teacher out of Arizona that's gained a lot of prominence in today's Christianity Teaches a lot of crazy things. But at the root is a real subtle thing, and that's the teaching that the church, that Christians have replaced the Jew. And let me tell you something, that teaching never leads to any place good. Never. And at the root of it is this leaven in the lump that it seems like a good thing like the Reformation I mean, men who had great courage and backbone, men who had great faith, but this little bit of leaven in the lump just continued to grow. This state church, how do we have a, how do we have a government and a church that's basically connected? 
There has to be some way in which all of the citizens, they gain their citizenship. How did that happen? They did that through infant baptism. You had to be baptized as an infant to be part of the church as well as be part of the government. You say, why did I never hear about that in in my U.S. history or in my world history uh, classes in school? Because... I don't know why. I guess maybe because of who's been in charge of those systems. But because of all that, I say this from the bottom of my heart. The Reformation needs a Reformation. Satan is willing to give up a thousand souls today if he can use it to bring ten million to damnation over the next ten years. And that's that leaven that's silently and invisibly permeating and having its influence on the whole that it just takes time. I, I don't think that Satan minded this, this reformation of the justification by faith as long as the other distinctives such as infant baptism were maintained. And so I say with all compassion and conviction that over the last 2,000 plus years of church history, that many, many have come to Christ as a byproduct of the Reformation. And I thank God for that. But all of these other things, hey, consider the state of the Protestant churches in America today. How, How many average church members within that Protestant movement are really putting their faith and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, plus nothing, minus nothing. But rather, how many of them are trusting in being a good neighbor, keeping the Ten Commandments, loving their neighbor as their self, being a good citizen, and so forth, which are all good things. But while we are good neighbors and good citizens, if our sins have not been atoned by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, Satan will laugh his way to the lake of fire as he joins us one day, if that's what we're truly trusting in. John Calvin had a man by the name of Michael Servetus burned at the stake for his religious beliefs. I wouldn't believe in the same things that Michael Servetus believed in. But I wouldn't burn someone at the stake for their religious beliefs, would you? John Calvin particularly hated a group of people that were called Anabaptists. Not only because of their belief on baptism but because of their teaching that took the sword or capital punishment out of the hands of the church. In other words, many of the Anabaptists, with a couple of exceptions, they all believed that it wasn't the church's place to punish heretics, that people should have the freedom of conscience to believe what they want to believe and worship the way that they want to worship. You say, wait a minute, John Calvin was a Protestant. Yeah, he protested against the Roman Catholic Church, but he didn't pull out to the point where he changed his philosophy and mentality that made the Roman Catholic Church what it became. The preacher, why are you... I'm, listen, folks, I promise you, I'm not being critical here this morning, and I'm not being arrogant. I'm simply trying to tell you the truth of history of where we came from. You know why we don't know where we're at today, spiritually speaking? Because we don't have a clue where we came from. We have no mooring. We have no foundation. Hey, in 1651, I guarantee you very few of you here this morning have heard of a man in America by the name of Obadiah Holmes. Oh, we've heard of men like George Washington and James Madison and Benjamin Franklin and so forth. But there was a man by the name of Obadiah Holmes who was a Baptist preacher in Rhode Island. He made a visit to William Witter, 
who was an elderly man from their congregation who had had to move to Lynn, Massachusetts, just a few miles away across the state border. Obadiah Holmes and several others, one being Roger Clark, founder of the First Baptist Church in America, they came and visited William Witter, and they had a little small church service in his home. Well, two constables show up and arrest them. Holmes had been previously banished by a court, which, by the way, on that court was a man by the name of Miles Standish. We've heard that name before. And so uh, Obadiah Holmes was banished from Massachusetts. That's the reason that he fled to Rhode Island. And he was banished by the Puritans, Protestants. Why was he banished? For immorality? No, he was banished for his Baptist beliefs. He was an Anabaptist. He believed that if you were baptized as an infant then it didn't do you any good. He believed that there should be a separation between church and state. I'm going to close this sermon out by doing the best I can to be brief, to give you a list of Baptist distinctives. Now let me say this to you. I'm not a, I'm not a promoter of the term Baptist. I've said many times from this pulpit that the label of your church is not that important. But throughout the last 2,000 years, there have been groups of people all across Europe and Asia that were similar in beliefs to us, but they were never necessarily called Baptists. There were Donatists, there were Waldenses, there were Paulicians, and many different groups and, and sects that just simply got their beliefs from the Bible, not from the tradition of their organized church. The following distinctives are published by Oregon State University. I found that interesting. They start out their list of distinctives by saying this, it is very important to understand that not all Baptist folk worship in the same style, but all true Baptists believe in these eight Baptist distinctives. It is what makes us Baptist. These teachings may be remembered by association with them, with the letters that form the word Baptists. The first one, B, is biblical authority. As a Baptist, I believe that the Bible is the final authority in all matters of belief and practice. Why? Because the Bible is inspired by God and bears the absolute authority of God Himself. Listen, we have a church gathering here today on the authority of the Bible, not on the authority of any other church. Listen, I don't believe that Peter was handed the keys to the kingdom. You study that out a little closer and you're going to find out. And by the way, I don't believe that Uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I believe that the gates of hell will not prevail against the rock, and the rock was not the church, the rock was Jesus Christ. We just read about Him going to hell three days and three nights, and the gates did not prevail against Him. He resurrected the third day. No human opinion or decree of any church group can override the Bible. Even creeds and confessions of faith which attempt to articulate the theology of Scripture do not carry Scripture's inherent authority. And that's why you will never find us here at this church referring to the Apostles' Creed or any other dogma that has been handed down to us. Listen, we should always go straight to the Bible. Why would we want to go to anything that is inferior to the Word of God? Secondly, the A in Baptist stands for autonomy of the local church. The local church is an independent body accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. All human authority for governing the local church resides within the local church itself. Thus, the church is autonomous or self-governing. No religious hierarchy outside the local church may dictate a church church's beliefs or practices. 
And by the way, I don't care what they're voting on at any convention. I mean, don't get me wrong. That sounded a little bit... I, I do care for their sake. But for our sake, for my sake, hey, they can do whatever they want to. Because it's not going to affect us, not one iota. Autonomy does not mean isolation. A Baptist church may fellowship with other churches around mutual interests and in an associational tie, but a Baptist church cannot be a member of any other body. By the way, that is scriptural. The P in Baptist, the first one, stands for priesthood of the believer. The term priest is defined as one authorized to perform the sacred rites of a religion, especially as a mediatory agent between humans and God. Hey, guess what? You and I as believers can go straight to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are kings and priests unto God as the scripture teaches us. Jesus is our great high priest. No other mediator is needed between God and the people. As priests, we can study God's word. We can pray for others. We can offer spiritual worship to God. Thank God we don't have to worship God through a hierarchy. Being here in this church service today, you are just simply hearing a pastor preach and teach the Word of God and shepherd his people. Aside from that, we all have direct access to God. I got saved the same way as you did, and I have to worship God in spirit and truth the same way that you do. Praise the Lord for that privilege that we all have equal access to God, whether we are a preacher or not. The T stands for two ordinances. The local church should practice two ordinances. Number one, baptism of believers by immersion in water, which is extremely scriptural in precedence and doctrine. Say, well, then why do so many people, why do so many religions baptize infants? Why do so many religions sprinkle? What's wrong with sprinkling? Well, it's just not biblical. And that can be shown throughout Scripture, but it's traditional. I was a little bit disappointed the other day as I was reading through the biography, autobiography of Charles Finney's, things that he wrote about himself. I was a little disappointed when later on in his life and ministry, he had always been a proponent of baptism by immersion. He got around a bunch of believers who talked him into baptizing by sprinkling. And he said that when he did that, that God blessed it in such a way that he was just sure that it must also be of God as well. And I thought, that is disappointing. Because feelings and experiences, listen, tradition, if it ain't scriptural, then it ain't right. No matter how it makes us feel. I wonder how much of that is Satan behind the scenes just kind of creating. Do you know that Satan can create an emotional stir as well? A supernatural effect. And then the second, not only baptism of believers, those that have already professed Christ with their own conscience, not by proxy, Not as an infant, but the second is the Lord's Supper or communion, which does not bring us any grace with God. It's just simply commemorating his death for our sins, his sinless body and his precious blood. We do it in remembrance of him. These are not sacraments. These are just simply ordinances that God gave us. The next is individual soul liberty. Every individual, whether a believer or an unbeliever, has the liberty to choose what he believes is right in the religious realm. No one should be forced to assent to any belief against his will. Incidentally, incidentally, the um, you know what the Muslim jihad is. You've heard of jihad. That's their holy war. Do you know that their holy war, their jihad, is their missions program? That they are convinced that if we can come in and we can overtake with military might or any might whatsoever. And by the way, if you don't think 
that they're not trying to infiltrate the United States of America through, first of all, toleration, then you better wake up and smell the coffee. Because those mentalities are just creeping in and creeping in. If you think that they're a, you know, that they're a peace-loving people, you just wait till they get in power and they start uh, realizing we better start believing our own book. We're in trouble. You say, well, have you read the Quran? I've read a lot of it. And I tell you what, these extremists are just people that are believing their own book because their book comes right out and says that they're supposed to kill Christians and Jews wherever they find us. It's just plain as the nose on your face. This liberty does not exempt one from responsibility to the word of God or from accountability to God himself. That's what a Baptist believes. The next one, saved, baptized church membership. Local church membership is restricted to individuals who give a believable testimony of personal faith in Christ and have publicly identified themselves with Him in believer's baptism. And by the way, let me just say this to all of you. If you, if you grew up in this church and your family, your parents were church members, and you just kind of inherited your church membership because you grew up in this, I'd like to encourage you to make the decision for yourself. We, we have a process here that's very, very, not unique, but it's different than our culture around us. For somebody that wants to become a member of this church, uh, what we do is we interview them, you sit down with one of the deacons and they ask them about their salvation testimony. They ask them about their baptism testimony to see if they've been scripturally baptized. They give you a copy of our statement of faith. Here's what Temple Baptist believes. And make sure that you realize that, hey, this is a fit. This is what I believe. This is how I see it. And yes, this is where I belong. And after you go through that process, we... We vote on you as a local church member. So that sounds a little bit weird or different. It sounds like you're making it complicated. And we're making it easy compared to centuries ago. Centuries ago, they didn't just accept that. They would, they would want to know that you're actually living righteous and holy. And if they suspected that you weren't, you didn't get to be a church member. Why do we do that? Because members of a local church should be people that are saved and been baptized. When members of a local church are believers, a oneness in Christ exists. You imagine the kids liked that point, didn't they? Yeah, thank you guys. Man, I'm getting more amens from them than you. You know why there are so many church splits and so many church problems and Christianity today because you got a bunch of church members that they're there because of tradition and religious practices, but there's no testimony or fruit of an actual conversion experience with Jesus Christ. In essence, you have a social gathering of religious people that don't have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them. That's a formula for disaster. It's the Spirit of God that produces unity in that bond of peace. Let me go quickly now. The next one, the T, stands for two offices. The Bible mandates only two offices in the church, the pastor and the deacon. The three terms for pastor, you've got pastor, elder, bishop, you've got overseer. They all refer to the same office. The two offices of pastor and deacon exist within the local church not as a hierarchy outside or over the local church. And that certainly can be shown from Scripture. And then finally, the last one, which is a big one, that's certainly relative to our topic today, the Reformation needs a Reformation, and that is the separation of church and state. As a Baptist... You trace back our roots to groups of people that didn't even call themselves Baptist. You trace back our heritage to people who were called Anabaptists, but they were called that as a derogatory term. 
Many of them, one of the biggest issues that established religion had with them is the belief in the separation of church and state. Now, when I say that in 2019, after the last, say, 30 years of liberal humanism in America, I have to qualify what I'm talking about. Because there is a group of people today that are trumpeting separation of church and state. And what they mean by it is they're saying we need to get God out of everything. And we need to just be freedom and atheistic and so forth. Listen, freedom, uh, excuse me, separation of church and state in no means implies that God and the scripture should have no influence over the government. What it's saying is that the two are not joined together. There is not a state church like there is in Great Britain, like there is in most of the nations in Europe. It's not the Church of England, and it's not the Roman Catholic Church. And you know what? If someone said, hey, we want, we want to adopt your independent Baptist beliefs to our nation... I mean, if, if, if President Trump called and said, hey, we want to we want to become a Baptist nation, you know what I'd say? No way, Jose. No, because you know what would happen is we would become just as corrupt as everybody else, because we would look at it with well-meaning. We'd say, well, you know what? We've got some people. We've got some Muslims in this country. We've got some You know, you could name all the different religions that we are opposed to. And you know what our corrupt human nature would start doing? We start doing the same things that all the reformers did. We would exercise whatever power we had over them through civil government. And ultimately, we would end up in the same place and the devil would still be laughing. Devil don't care how he gets you to from point A to point B as long as he gets you there. And so the separation of church and state means that the state should not have an established church, that they should run their civil government. The church may have influence over them, but they are not in any way connected together. And the state should never dictate to the church what we believe and what we preach. In Canada today, it's illegal for a preacher of any denomination to preach that homosexuality is sinful behavior. To which case, I dread the day when it happens in America, although I prophesy that the day will come. In which case, I say, by the grace of God, by His power, by His help, I hope and pray that I will continue to preach the whole counsel of God regardless of what the civil government says I can or cannot do. Now listen, when I'm out there on public property and so forth, I understand I am bound to their laws. But on our property, places where we should be able to do what we want to do and preach what we want to preach, we should continue to do so even if it costs us. That's what Baptists have stood for For 2,000 years, and particularly the 243 years since the Declaration of Independence. Incidentally, it can be proven that the Bill of Rights, and especially the separation of church of state, especially the freedom of religion that we enjoy today, the influence on Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, James Madison, the influence on those men came at the last hours before the Constitution was drafted. It came by Baptist preachers who exerted influence upon them. It did not come from the established Congregationalist Church in America. Thank God. Thank God for men like Obadiah Holmes, who, by the way, was... Not only arrested, but he took 30 lashes with a double whip and was severely scarred and bloodied because he opposed a state church and he opposed infant baptism. Thank God for our Baptist heritage. In conclusion, we went all on to the Reformation Baptist distinctives in church history, but 
I wouldn't be a good minister if I didn't at least bring us back to the text and give a very brief and simple exegesis of our text. In verse 23, it speaks of the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Folks, if we would put on our thinking cap and consider what Peter's saying and who he's saying it to, consider this whole concept as Peter says to the Israelites that are standing before him, he says, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you crucified His Son, Jesus Christ. Now I ask you the question, the men to whom he were, was preaching, do you think that any one of them drove a nail in Jesus' hands or in His feet? Do you think that any one of them actually used the spear to pierce His side? In fact, I dare say that there were some in the congregation that weren't even assenting to Christ's death. Every person who was an Israelite, there were some that were at the foot of the cross that were not consenting to His death. They were weeping over it. And so we have a basic understanding that yes, Jesus was crucified by the determinate for foreknowledge and determinate counsel of God, but that doesn't mean that every single individual of Israel were the ones that crucified Him. Every reference in the Bible to predestination, election, is always speaking to a plurality of people in light of God's foreknowledge. It's never talking about the individuals themselves, it's talking collectively. Yes, the church is elect. Yes, praise God, as the church, we are predestinated. I believe that. But the individuals that get into the church, that is something that has to do with whether we receive it or not. First Peter 1, verse number 2, says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Second Timothy 2, verse number 10 Paul says, therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Did Paul for a moment think that the elect was some predestined group that God had chosen to salvation? No, he knew that what we do and what they do is all conditional upon our response to God's sovereignty. In fact, look at our text here, verse number 39 of Acts 2. Paul, Peter says, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. How about that? There has to be a calling from God to salvation. But notice as we compare that to verse number 41, it says, Then they... That's the individuals that gladly received His Word were baptized. How about that? God was calling, but there was an individual responsibility to gladly receive the Word of God. Reformed theologians, Calvinists if you will, call it whatever you want. Focus on the sovereignty of God at the expense of man's responsibility. Arminians... The flip side of the, the coin, focus on man's responsibility at the expense of God's sovereignty. In many respects, both systems are right. Both systems have their strengths and weaknesses. Both systems, if followed at the expense of the other, will lead you into a ditch. There's ditches on both sides of the road, and Satan doesn't care which one we land in. And so I close with this statement. Let's let God be sovereign. Let's let us be responsible. The things that we don't understand about the foreknowledge and the sovereignty of God, let's just trust Him to take care of that. In the meantime, let's just focus on what God said, whosoever will, and let us gladly receive the Word of God. The purpose of Christ is obvious. He died on the cross for our sins. He spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But praise the Lord, He came up 
in a resurrected body, praise the Lord. And the question is, will you gladly receive it? Will you receive that message? Will you gladly receive Him as your personal Savior? If you're not saved here today, God is speaking to your heart and you realize that I've got something missing. I need something that's beyond me. I need something more than what religion has to offer. I want Jesus Christ as my Savior. You didn't come to that conclusion just out of the blue on your own. You came to that conclusion because of the gospel message and because the Holy Spirit is calling out to you and saying, come, come to me, Jesus says. But you are responsible for your response to his ability. You've got to make that decision that I want to be saved. You've got to be willing to turn from your sin, turn from your false beliefs, turn from your tradition and your religion and say, you know what? I don't have all the answers, but I know one thing. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I'm going to trust Him, and I'm going to call upon Him to be my Savior today. Will you do that? Will you do that?